Today, on the Pale Threshold. Better an old demon than a new god. Pareidolia of allegory related to historical events and religious context. History does not exist in a vacuum. Record keeping is very important. One of the first things that gets lost as the historical record and archaeological record dissipates over time is the context and intention behind the original events. The mind will fill in details where they are not available and ascribe significance to things based on one's own perceptions. This is the pareidolia of allegory which occurs in historical context. One thing taking away from the accountability of historical records is this pareidolia. It's much better to leave things open-ended than to fill in details where one is unsure or the historical record is unclear. Even contemporaneous accounts can be flawed. Herodotus was basically the Rick Steves Travels Europe of his time. Whenever he would encounter new situations, new people, he did his best to record what it was he was seeing. But he didn't always know exactly why people were doing the things they were doing or the overall cultural significance of what he was encountering. Thus, his records are deeply flawed. It's good that we do have Herodotus's history, but it cannot be taken alone as a full historical account, especially in the modern era where more information is available. Allegory and archetypes are very easy to ascribe to historical events. You have the work of Joseph Campbell, in which he lays out all of these archetypes. People, especially in the modern digital age, where everything is now available online, are trying to make icons of themselves, trying to be put on a pedestal. The cult of celebrity has kind of reached its tipping point in this particular time. But it's important to be able to separate the legend from the individual and see the well-rounded person behind that celebrity. It can perpetuate a culture in which people are above reproach and above the law, which can be harmful overall. I'm going to shift gears now into deity worship and historical precedence. It's important to have that proper historical context when approaching devotional practice and, by extension, magical practice. A lot of the roots for modern esoteric thought and philosophy were planted rather recently within the past 150 years or so. In the early 20th century, you had people like Crowley, Blavatsky, Manly P. Hall, and others who were reviving ancient ideas under the umbrella of Hermeticism and these new religious orders, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, Astra Argentum, OTO, Theosophical Society. There was also, at this time, a big Egyptology boom. So a lot of new archaeological evidence coming to the forefront and being uncovered and introduced to modern audiences. However, these records were still incomplete. So even though a lot of information had been uncovered, there was still a lot that needed to be translated and a lot of historical sites that had not yet been uncovered. The main archaeological discovery during this time period being the nearly complete tomb of Tutankhamun. To give a little historical context, the reason Tutankhamun's tomb was so well preserved was that his father, 
was a heretic who had created a monotheistic religion, worshipping the Aten disk, basically just the sun disk in the sky. What happened was this wrestled control away from the priests of Amun. So when Tutankhamun, the boy king, came into power and restored the polytheistic religious structure, the priests of Amun were very invested in his being remembered for eternity. Back to the early 20th century. This was a period of time when publishing books about esoteric concepts was a very good and lucrative way to make a living. Thus, it was in the best interest of these esotericists to be as verbose as possible about these subjects, to fill in details where details were not necessarily available. This comes into a lot of channeled information. Channeling can be a very useful and effective tool in finding out things about the world around you, especially if you have highly attuned your psychic capabilities. However, that information by its nature is going to be flawed and it's necessary to fact check it, documenting everything very well and then going back and, and figuring out how much of this can be verified using reliable sources? There was also a lot of artistic license being taken, especially in the artwork field. Because when you are creating a beautiful painting, it's basically whatever you want it to be. The symbolism is the most crucial part of esoteric artwork. But again, filling in a lot of these details, some of that historical precedent and context is lost. Not all of the work that came out of this period was bad, and in fact some of these systems are still very useful, even if not fully historically accurate. However, the biggest disservice done to material during this time was decontextualization and cultural appropriation. So as previously mentioned, we had the Egyptological boom. During this period of time, you have Aleister Crowley and Rose sleeping inside the pyramid and channeling that information. You have other esotericists who are jumping on the Egyptology bandwagon and talking about these entities. You also have Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn's appropriation of the Tree of Life from Kabbalah. This is one of those systems that is very useful in its structure in the context of the Golden Dawn but which has been highly sanitized of Jewish religious context in the context that it's used in Golden Dawn, which is truly a disservice. In order to properly study Kabbalah, by my own estimation, as an outsider, one must have extensive understanding of Hebrew and of Jewish religious texts. That is why in previous times, a boundary was set that one must be 40 years old before commencing study of Kabbalah. That's just been my experience, though. Please let me know if you resist it. The Egyptian religious practices and Kabbalah also have their roots in ancient Sumerian and Babylonian religious practices. And those, I think, have kind of fallen by the wayside. There is a lot of cuneiform documentation of different religious practices. Now we have much more information about Inanna, 
who is a major Sumerian deity, and how Inanna has transformed through different systems is something I have tracked and studied. But the effect was that a lot of these things started in, in that Sumeria, Babylon region, and then disseminated throughout the Middle East. So then in the 60s and 70s, you have the New Age spiritual movement starting. A lot of this was based in things like transcendental meditation. There was a much bigger focus on Eastern religions, especially coming out of India. And you have people doing things more based on feel and the vibes. You have a lot of mother goddess worship. You have a lot of conflation of a lot of different energies into that mother goddess energy. There was also the resurgence of ancient solar worship that was particular to the British Islands. So now the Wiccans and Pagans celebrate the Wheel of the Year. Four of those holidays are based around the solstices and the equinoxes. But they filled in about halfway between the solstices and the equinoxes these other holidays. When I studied the Wheel of the Year, I came to find that these holidays are not even necessarily like the most popular or widely celebrated of the ancient holidays. And in fact, you see the entity of Ostara, which dates only back to the 19th century. That doesn't mean that Ostara is not valid, but it's important to understand where these things come from so that you can properly utilize their energies. If you're treating this Germanic goddess from the 19th century as an ancient druidic entity, you're not really going to be able to tap into that energy properly. You may as well just use Jesus at that point, because then you're able to use the whole resurrection and everything that goes along with that. There's also a lot of conflation of unrelated concepts. One thing I'd like to tackle in particular is the conflation of Jesus with a lot of these other entities. The one that really gets my goat the most is when they conflate Jesus with Horus, because those two deities are very dissimilar. Horus has been syncretized with a number of different deities in ancient Egypt to relate specific concepts, but he doesn't really have that much to do with the redemption of mankind. If you want the redemption of mankind, you're looking at something more like the myth of the Eye of Ra decimating half of mankind and then Thoth brewing a bunch of beer to get her drunk so she'll go to sleep and stop the slaughter. Which is very dissimilar from our ideas today about Jesus and how his sacrifice was meant to take the burden of our own individual sins and basically get rid of it. Additionally, the whole point of having Jesus Christ is that we no longer need these separate entities. Now, there have been situations in Christianity where syncretization with native 
pantheons has been very effective. So if you look at the Orishas, for example, all of those have been syncretized with Catholic saints. And that method of practice is highly effective. It's not something that I personally do, so I invite you to look into it on your own. But it's something that has been utilized in a very effective way by practitioners. And that gets us into the final part of this podcast today, which is chaos magic and being able to create and erect your own entities for worship and practice. You could use your birthday as a sacred holiday. Maybe there are landmarks in your own history that have a lot more meaning than these landmarks which were set forth by our predecessors. Maybe you have ancestral dates. This is the date that my particular branch of the family ended up in this particular place where we live. Those things will mean so much more to you and have the potential to be tapped into energetically in a much more powerful way than some arbitrary thing that you've run across in a history or a mythological text. It's better to know the historical context of pre-existing entities and be able to work within that particular system than to try to invent things for these gods. Otherwise, just make up your own system. I'm not going to go into the Doctor Who fandom and write about how the Ninth Doctor is anarcho-capitalist. And it's not that no one's allowed to write new scriptures for these old gods, but it really has to be within a specific framework. And honestly, it's better if it comes from within that system and not from outsiders who don't really understand the full context. Isis was a deity widely adopted by the Greeks. In the Hellenistic period of Egypt, there were a lot of syncretizations that occurred that were very effective, but the Greeks were living in Egypt at the time. You have the deity of Serapis, which was the Apis bull and a few other entities kind of combined all together into this one masculine deity. And that was a very effective cult. Ancient deities can hold more collective power in that more people know about them, so there's more of that collective energy going into a particular egregore. But that doesn't mean that you can't create new entities. We have Church of the Subgenius and Bob. You've got the flying spaghetti monster. Even in Discordianism, they have co-opted the goddess of Eris, but her lexicon from ancient times is not very large, and their intention has remained quite true to her original concept. So these are just some things to keep in mind as you enter your 
own practice. My name is Verge Bliss. Thank you for joining me today. And until next time, never fear the pale threshold.